plans for my crazy day. My packed commute. All those unread emails in my inbox. But I'm getting stronger, faster, and pushing myself further every day. I don't care if I'm not like everyone else. This punching bag is the best way to end my day. (laughs) Fearless is knowing yoga isn't your style. That's the power of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Federal Employee Program. Learn more about our healthy benefits at fepblue.org slash get more. You are Locked On Seahawks, your daily Seattle Seahawks podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Locked On Seahawks. This is Vincent Verhey of Football Outsiders, and I'm back talking your Seattle Seahawks and all the news around the NFL. Thanks for hanging out today, and let's hang out again tomorrow. Be sure you and your friends subscribe to the podcast, because I will be here for you every weekday. We're going to have some fun today. We're going to do a crosstalk segment with John Buschko of Locked On Jets. That turned into a very fun conversation, a very long conversation. This is going to be the longest edition yet of Locked On Seahawks. So if you've got some time to kill, I've got some good news for you. Now, before we get into that, we're going to do our usual Friday preview. The five players on the Jets, Seattle has to stop. Now, usually by default here, I will make one of these players the quarterback because The quarterback is the most important player on any team, but we talked about Ryan Fitzpatrick earlier in this week, and we're going to talk about him a lot more with uh, John Buchko. So we'll skip that for now. The two offensive players Seattle does have to stop are a running back and a wide receiver, both proven veterans, both with long track records of success. The running back, of course, is Matt Forte, 32 years old, went to Tulane University. He was a second-round pick in 2008. But eight years in Chicago and gained at least 1,287 yards in scrimmage every year he played for the Bears. That's a very good season for anyone, and he did it eight years in a row. He also set an NFL record with 102 catches in 2014. That is an all-time record for catches by a running back. And on top of all that, through three games in New York, his numbers have actually gone up in a way. He's averaging 87 rushing yards per game through three games with the Jets. That would be a career high, believe it or not. And now his 22.3 receiving yards per game, that's a career low, but he's still on pace for more than 1,500 yards from scrimmage. And at age 32, that's a hell of a season. He is the fifth uh, leading rusher among all active players. He is a dangerous threat on the, in the, on the ground and in the air, despite his low, slow start. And he's someone Seattle definitely has to be worried about. A wide receiver, the Bears have Brandon Marshall, 32 years old, out of Central Florida. A fourth-round pick in 2006 with the Broncos. Uh, he once had 7,000-yard seasons in a row, but he did that over playing with three different teams, uh, three with Denver, then two with Miami, and then two in Chicago. And the fact that he's now in a fourth team kind of shows you that he can be a bit of a headache, and teams are not in a hurry to hang on to him, but he's also productive everywhere he goes. Even last year, he had 1,500 yards and 14 touchdowns, was tied for the league lead. But this year, he's, he's uh, so far through three games, 53 yards per game. That's a career low. Zero touchdowns, also a career low, but despite that slow start, he is also very dangerous. He is fifth among active players in receiving yards. After that, we go to the defensive side of the ball, and we talked about it earlier in this week. The Jets, the, the, the one thing the Jets do better than anything else is stop the run, and that starts up front with their terrifying trio of linemen. Uh, first of all, there's Muhammad Wilkerson, age 27, out of Temple, a first-round pick in 2011. Now, the Jets play a 3-4, and like most 3-4 teams, they put a bunch of big bodies in the middle to clog the field, and those guys don't necessarily make plays. They don't necessarily get great individual stats. 
But uh, this trio of linemen, they don't they don't make the number the, the, the great sack numbers you'd see from a, uh, a Justin Houston or a JJ Watt. But uh, for interior for interior linemen, they still make a ton of plays. Muhammad Wilkerson in in the past three years from 2013 to 2015, 28 and a half sacks. That's a pretty good year for some edge rushers. It's a very good very good uh, three years. Let me start over. That's a good three-year set from some edge rushers. It's an outstanding three-year set from an interior lineman. Uh, Two-time second-team All-NFL player is Muhammad Wilkerson. Now, the good news, such as it is for Seattle, is that he has an ankle injury, and he is questionable for Sunday's game. So, uh, quite frankly, Seattle's odds of winning go way up if he is not on the field. Then we have Sheldon Richardson, age 26, out of Missouri. A first-round draft pick in 2013. He has 13 sacks the last two years. Again, not uh, going to lead the league in that category, but for an interior lineman, that's excellent production. He was the 2013 Defensive Rookie of the Year. And it seems like every two years, every odd year, the Jets use a first-round pick on a defensive lineman. They took Wilkerson in 2011. They took Richardson in 2013. And 2015, they used the sixth overall pick of the draft on USC's Leonard Williams. Williams is only 22 years old. He is still growing, but he had uh, three sacks as a rookie, and he already has three sacks in three games this year. So that is what Seattle is dealing with up front. There's three monsters on the defensive line, and uh, getting past them will be the first step in getting any, any offensive success. But the good news is once you do get past them, there is offensive success to be had. We're going to talk about all of that in more detail here in a minute with John Bushko of Locked on Jets. Before we do, let's take a second to look at what else is going on on going on on the Locked On Podcast Network today. Over at the Mothership, Locked On NFL, Matt Williamson has game previews of all the action in Week Four. You want to check that out for sure. Over at Locked On Fantasy, Vinny Iyer of Sporting News, he's looking at the uh, San Diego Chargers and Philip Rivers, and looks like a great matchup for them against New Orleans this week. And if you watch the Thursday night game, it wasn't uh, as great games go. That wasn't one of them. But you want to check out Locked on Bengals with James Rapine. He's going to look at the 22-7 win for Cincinnati and what that means for them. And uh, our old buddy Ron Caniff, who joined us before week one for, uh, to preview the Seahawks-Dolphins game, he's got Locked on Dolphins. He's breaking down that 22-7 game, what it means for Miami, and is there any hope for them to salvage their season. So be sure and check all that out. Ch- check all that out on the Locked On Podcast Network today. Okay, with that business out of the way, let's not waste any more time. Get right into the meat of the action. Here is our crosstalk segment with John Bushko of Locked On Jets, previewing the Week 4 game between Seattle and the Jets this Sunday. Hello, everybody. I am John with the Locked On Jets podcast. And this is Vincent Verhey with Locked On Seahawks. And we are here today giving you a little crossover show as the Jets and Seahawks play each other in week four of the NFL season. So, uh, Vincent, how are you today? I'm doing fine. Thanks for setting this all up and taking care of the tech end. I appreciate that. Oh, you got it. You got it. So uh, let's start out. Uh, I got a question for you about the Seahawks, and it's about the status of Russell Wilson. What does it sound like? Thing, how, how, does it, how does it sound like he is uh, health-wise? Uh, first of all, he is definitely going to play. There's no indication of anything, anything else. Um, he had a sprained M- MCL, the, you know, the ligament on the inside of the knee when the, uh, Eli Harold of the 49ers, 49ers 
tackled him on a run and came down on top of his leg. And uh, he actually came back into the game for one snap. And then after the drive ended, the Seahawks could have stopped to that right away. Um, so he's going to play. He's certainly not going to be at 100%. Um, he's, just how much his mobility is going to be limited is unclear. Uh, he told reporters after practice that he had done his exact words were everything. He did everything. And uh, so uh, I guess to a degree we saw, we shall see, but his status, at least as far as will he or will he not play, that's not even a question. He is going to play and he is going to uh, start. To what extent do, have you seen his – or to what extent was his lim- mobility limited because he suffered another injury earlier in the year? Have, have, were there any, have there been any lingering side effects from that injury? He had uh, in week one, uh, Dominican Sue of the uh, Dolphins uh, was tackling him and uh, in the process very, very accidentally stepped on his ankle. And I know there's been accusations of Sue, Sue stepping on guys in the past, but this is clearly just a freak thing. Uh, but anyway, yeah, he's had a sprained ankle and uh, he's been playing with that. And um, I can't say it's not an issue. Uh, I, I can't say he's been the same Russell Wilson, but he has – uh, you know, 50% of Russell Wilson is still a better runner than most quarterbacks. So uh, he's still able to, to get the uh, – when, when easy yards are there, he can still take them. But he's clearly not the same running threat he's been in years past, at least not right now. How effective do you think he would be if this knee injury confines him to the pocket? How successful? Uh, yeah, uh... Sorry, I misunderstood you. Um, he's, you know, there's no question that he leaves the pocket as much as anyone, and there's no question that his scrambling and uh, making big plays on the fly, there's no question that's what he does best. But I have seen enough games uh, that he has won from the pocket, and I've seen enough big throws in big situations from the pocket that I don't think it's quite as big an issue as how it's being portrayed. Um He's, you know, like I say, it's what he does best being taken away. But the other things he does, he's still very good at those two. Okay. Um, so uh, do you have any Jets questions? I hit you with three. Uh, what, what questions do you have about the Jets? Well, as long as we're talking about quarterbacks, how how are people feeling about Ryan Fitzpatrick these days? Are, are there calls to go to Geno Smith or Bryce Petty? Um, not so much Petty. Uh, there are a lot of. Jets fans out there who want to see Geno Smith get a chance. And there are, there was, I'm not sure it was a majority, but there are a number of fans who there's, there are people out there who are high on Geno Smith, or at least they're intrigued by Geno Smith because in his first two seasons, he did not play with under ideal circumstances to say the least. He had a bottom of the league receiver group, the coaching was kind of suspect. The offensive line was nothing to write home about. So th- there, there's been a segment of fans who have wanted to see Gino play this whole time. It, it very, How high they are on him varies. There are some who just kind of want to see what he can do in a better circumstance. There are others who really did not want Fitzpatrick back at all. Uh, I think most of the fans are probably not ready to throw the towel in on Fitzpatrick, but another bad game they might be he had a very bad week 17 last year in the game in the game that kept the jets out of the playoffs against buffalo so far this year shaky in preseason not sure how much that means not a very good week one an excellent week two and then a disaster in week three so 
you really have not seen outside of that outside of the one game week two against Buffalo. You've not seen a great Fitzpatrick. So I think it's probably a little early for most people to want to pull the trigger on this. As I said, there are a few people who want to see Gino to varying degrees. I think right now that you, there's concern about Fitzpatrick though, because this is a guy who's always been kind of a journeyman, the guy who kind of caught fire for a five game stretch late last season. And the question was whether it was just a product of playing bad defenses or whether this was a guy who maybe things were finally coming together where he found a system that's that fit his strengths. He found a team where he developed chem- chemistry with some of the receivers. So far this season, it's lo- it's looking like it was kind of a fluke and he's looking like the guy who has been an up and down journeyman for most of his career. Yeah, I was, I was very surprised in the off season with the way they handled everything because in many ways, this looks like a team that's ready to win now. They have a, a great front seven, and uh, I really like their receivers. And they go out and sign Matt Forte, who uh, I watched him a lot in Chicago last year. I thought he had a lot left in the tank. And then at quarterback, they just didn't do anything. Uh, they, they did not want to sign Fitzpatrick to big money, but they didn't go out to get anyone else either. And I just thought, if you have faith in him to – uh, if you have faith in him to get back to the playoffs, or, then you sign him right away and don't let him, don't risk him hitting the open market. And if you don't have faith in him to uh, to do that, then either go with Gino or something, or make a trading and try to somebody, try to get somebody else in there. And instead, they just sort of stood pat and let things fall the way they did, and it, it, it just confused me. Um, I thought that they actually kind of uh, split the atom, so to speak, because. Fitzpatrick, I think they had enough confidence in Fitzpatrick that they thought he was his best option, but they weren't necessarily sold on him enough to make a long-term commitment. Really, only one team in his career has made a long-term commitment to Fitzpatrick. That's Buffalo, and they live to regret it. I think right now what the Jets are doing is the Jets are kind of on two parallel tracks. When Mike McCagnan and Todd Bowles came in prior to the start of the 2015 season, this team had a ton of cap space. But the reason the team had a ton of cap space is that there was no talent on the team outside of the right. defensive line and a few other places. So the reason they had this cap space was there were a bunch of guys who should have been, there was nobody on their second and third contract. None of the drafted players had panned out the way they panned out in Seattle. You know, there, there were no big money deals to give out on guys in their second contract. So they, the long-term goal is to replenish the team with young talent through the draft. But usually it takes two, maybe two to three years for the talent to hit and kind of, uh, get adjusted to the NFL. So what they did was they brought in a bunch of veterans to, as kind of stop gaps to fill in those, fill in between, fill in those couple of years. So I, I think it's, it, the Jets are trying to win now, but I also think that their focus is the long term. The, they locked up Muhammad Wilkerson, who is like the, he, he's, he's, one, he's one of the few draft success stories that the team has had since 2008. And, so I, I, that was kind of long-term thinking, I think. They did not sign a bunch of veterans at the expense of the future. They signed a bunch of veterans to try and stay competitive, maybe a couple of guys who can mentor some of the young guys as they break them in. But I'm not sure. I, I feel like in the NFL, there's not as big a distinction between win now and rebuilding as there is in maybe baseball, where if you draft a player, he's five years away from being in the majors or right. you know, a sport that where a contract is guaranteed like basketball where, you know, if you, you're stuck with a bunch of bad contracts when you, when you start as a GM, 
you just have to wait them out. In football, you know, you can usually get out of any deal in two to three years. So I don't think that, I think the Jets are kind of on parallel tracks. And I feel like most of the teams in the league are, are doing some sort of combination between trying to compete in the short term and trying to win in the long term. Okay, that makes sense. So I guess the uh, I, I guess uh, the next question uh, let's talk about the defense. Um, tell uh, Seattle fans who may not be familiar with the Jets, tell them about how great these Jets linemen are and how how much they should be scared. Well, you know, I mentioned that the Jets have not had many successful draft picks in recent years. The one area where that would be an exception is the defensive line, where they have three first-round 300-pounders in Muhammad Wilkerson, Sheldon Richardson, and Leonard Williams. These guys really can line up anywhere on the line. The last year, the Jets tried Richardson out as, a, as an outside linebacker, kind of in that edge role a little bit. Did not go that great, so now he's back on the line this year. But the Jets have essentially gone to – the Jets will essentially play f- – Four, four down linemen for most for much of the game, and they're all 300-pounders. There's the three guys, Wilkerson, Richardson, Williams, and then a nose tackle they added from Pittsburgh, Steve McClendon. And these guys are very difficult matchups because they're 300-pounders, but they're also 300-pounders who can move. So, you you know, you can run stunts with them. You can line them up at end. You can, line, you can move them inside. They're very difficult. They're a bunch of guys who are very difficult to block. And the thing is, when you have three or four of those guys, there are only so many blockers you have. You can't double-team all of them. So somebody's, somebody's going to be singled and the way, you know, as talented as these guys are more often than not, the guy that's the guy or guys who are single are going to win their matchups, you know, and week, week one, they had seven sacks against the solid uh, Cincinnati defensive offensive line. And that was without Richardson who was suspended for the first week of the year. So it's a tremendous defensive line. And it's, if you look at the way this team has played through the first three weeks, there are some question marks at linebacker, and there are some huge question marks in the secondary. So this team is going to have to rely on this defensive line to carry the def- to carry the entire unit. Now, do those three guys, uh, Williams, Wilkerson, and Richardson, do they all stay on the field in, in nickel and dime packages, or do they kind of rotate? These guys are actually on the field on the field an awful lot. Uh, Wilkerson is a guy who seldom comes off the field. He's been in on over ninety percent of the snaps most of his career. Uh, the other guys, they'll they, these guys are playing most of the game. These, these guys do, do tend to stay on the field for three downs. Uh, I think Richardson and Williams tend probably not as much as the as Wilkerson, but you'll see a lot of these guys playing all together. The Jets have got Todd Bowles is kind of known as a three four coach, but early parts of this year, the Jets have played four down linemen a lot. So that's kind of their their base philosophy is we're going to take a half ton of stud football player and put it right in your face and we'll go from there. Yeah, I think Bowles has had to kind of adapt to what he does because the Jets really had nothing proven in in the way of an, uh, one of those hybrid outside linebackers. There was a guy they drafted in the, in the third round last year, Lorenzo Malton out of Louisville, who played situationally last year on passing downs and actually had a pretty solid year. Had a couple sacks, but his pressure rates were were pretty high from what I from the numbers I looked at, and just from the, watching the film, he he generated a lot of pressure for the amount of time he played. He was kind of supposed to step into a three down role this year, but he kind of struggled in camp and preseason. Did not make the progress the team was hoping he'd make, so he's kind of reverted back to more of a situational guy. They also drafted another linebacker, uh, Jenkins. Jordan Jenkins, also in the third round this year out of Georgia. 
he got banged up in preseason. So his first game back was last week against Kansas City. He looked pretty solid, but, you know, he's a rookie. You don't want to put too much on his plate. All right, and that's that's all bad news for Seattle, whose offensive line was just a horror show in weeks one and two. And uh, better, but not necessarily great in week, in week three against San Francisco. And uh, I did some preseason research on this, and uh, I want to say I, I didn't check my numbers, so if I'm making some errors, some small errors here, forgive me, but the, the general point stands. Um, Nick Mangold of the Jets, the uh, setter, his cap hit this year is about $8.6 million. Seattle Seahawks' cap hit for all 10 offensive linemen on the roster is about $8.6 million. They have wow. Gone bargain, yeah, <laughs> they have gone bargain basement, fair part, uh, as, as, as cheap as they can go, and uh, it has not worked out well. Um, the only, uh, really, the only uh, cause for hope is that uh, the first-round pick, Jermaine Fetty, um, he has not played this year, and there is – it's not guaranteed, but look, it's looking like there, he, he may start this week, which would be a huge help. He has not hit an ankle injury in the preseason and has missed the whole year. But, yeah, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm terrified of what Leonard Williams and Muhammad Wilkerson and company can do with the likes of uh, Justin Britt and Gary Gilliam and Bradley Sowell and uh, the rest of these uh, spare parts that Seattle found laying around at the scrap heap and tried to – an offensive line together. Um, it seems it's, uh, it's always seemed to me that the Seahawks have never been a team that's been overly overly reliant on the offensive line. In years past, their offense has been it's been based around Marshawn Lynch, and then Wilson obviously has that great mobility. He's a guy who can great at extending plays, playing kind of schoolyard football. I'm interested philosophically. Do you think that's because they've decided they're going to spend money elsewhere? Do you think that's trust that they can uh, that they can coach these guys up? Do you think it's that they can work around them? Why do you think the Seahawks uh, haven't invested in that line? Uh, well, you're definitely right about how much they've relied on Marshawn Lynch breaking tackles, and of course Russell Wilson breaking tackles too. Um, it's a it's a, there's a lot going into it philosophically. Um, they have the highest paid secondary in the league, and that has worked out well. So that's where the money has gone. Um, you can't on that side of it. You can't follow that specific strategy. But even when they won the Super Bowl, the offensive line was the biggest weakness, and it hasn't really. It's pretty much gotten worse every year since then. And then even coming into this draft, when they had uh, Thomas Rawls, who was in, in, in six or eight games as a rookie, was tremendous at running back, and they had Christian Michael, who was surprisingly effective when he came back at the end of the year. That's two good options at running back. But meanwhile, their offensive line was in tatters. And then they lost uh, two starters when J.R. Sweezy signed with Tampa Bay and Russell Lacoon signed with Denver. So you think, okay, now's the time to load up an offensive lineman. And they go into the draft, and the first round they take Jermaine Fetty, the guard out of A&M, and everyone thinks, okay, cool, that's a good blocker. Now we can go get two more. Instead, they didn't draft any more linemen after that, but they did draft three more running backs. So (laughs) clearly their philosophy is, if we get enough good runners and protect them and rotate them, they'll be able to make plays no matter who is blocking in front of them. Now, the other part of this is that Tom Cable, Seattle's offensive line coach, and he has outright said that the coaching of uh, college linemen these days is so terrible, he would almost rather just have a, a, an athletic, uh, unproven guy and try to teach coaches from the ground up. Uh, they experimented 
with several. They had three or four guys who were defensive linemen in college who they drafted and tried to turn into offensive linemen. And the only one who really has been a success is Sweezy, uh, who is now a bad starting overpaid. He's bad overpaid right guard in Tampa Bay, but he's a starter, so I can't call it a complete failure. But, uh, yeah, philosophically, they feel like uh, it doesn't make sense to invest a ton of resources in the offensive line. It makes sense to uh, it makes sense to build a defense. You get a lot of skill players, and of course you have to have a quarterback. And an offensive line, they're just trying to get by. And it was a, like I say, a disaster in weeks one and two. And in week three, you saw what the Seattle offense could do. Uh, I want to say they scored uh, off the top of my head. I forget how many points they scored. It was a blowout win, thirty some points. And that that was again just with average blocking. There were still a lot of players where the runnings were hit the backfield, and where where Russell Wilson was under pressure, but. They have so many good players at the skill positions that if they can just get average blocking, they can make plenty of big plays. Yeah, I think to, you, know, you may speak about what Tom Cable said. I, I imagine that the rules and you know, the different rules in college about men downfield has impacted the way college linemen develop. I heard Nick Saban talk about that. But speaking of the Seattle offensive that kind of segues into my next question because they traded one of their most successful linemen uh, to get a star tight end, Jimmy Graham from New Orleans before last season. And I'm interested to hear how Seattle is utilizing him because he, you know, there was, there were a lot of gripes last year before he got hurt about his production. Some people were complaining about the way he's been used. Can you kind of take us through how, how the Seahawks utilize Jimmy Graham and whether you think he can be effective in this offense? Well, let's take it back to the time when the trade was made. Um, it was after the 2014 season, and Seattle was coming off a Super Bowl loss to New England. And uh, their wide receivers that year were really, really not good. Uh, that was the year they were counting on. You know, they traded for Percy Harvin, and he was hurt one year, and then a head case the next year, and they couldn't wait to get him out of town. Um, but without him, and they let uh, they had let Golden Tate sign with Detroit because they thought Tate and Harvin, or excuse me, they thought Harvin was going to be the number one guy. And suddenly you look around, there's no Tate, there's no Harvin. Um, Doug Baldwin had not yet developed into a true number one, and they got to the Super Bowl, but the, the, the receivers were question mark all year. And even in the Super Bowl, their best receiver in that game was Chris Matthews, a guy who had never caught a pass before, and I don't think he's caught a pass since. So it was really a ragtag bunch of ragtag crews. So they needed receiving help, but no question about that. And Jimmy Graham just seemed like a perfect fit in the offense at that time because the receivers they did have, by and large, were smaller, quick slot guys. They didn't have a big guy to be a red zone matchup. Uh, a big, a big, you know, the big target to draw DPIs downfield. He seemed like the perfect, the perfect uh, fit for their offense. So he comes in here in 2015, and the first half of the year, it was definitely clunky in spots, uh, as as the offense and as uh, Russell Wilson got used to him and how best to use him. It's a little overstated how you know you'll hear people say it was a disaster and a failure. At the time he was hurt, he was still the team's leading receiver. So it wasn't all they had envisioned. It was definitely disappointing, but I can't say it was it was a disaster. Then, of course, he was hurt, and then by coincidence, that's the point where Seattle's offense took off, took off last year. Um, this year, he had you know he got hurt last year, had his torn patellar tendon, which is an injury that has you know in, even in recent times has been close to a career ender. So there was no there wasn't even a guarantee he'd be able to play come week one. Um, he played a little bit in week one, had a big catch on the game-winning touchdown drive. 
He played a little in week two and didn't do much in that hideous, ugly, ugly, ugly loss to the Rams. And then last week he really blew up and had the uh, wide-open touchdown catch. And then even more impressive, the uh, uh, the deep ball down the middle where he out-jumped double coverage and pulled in the pass. And so it was, uh, at this point, all, all, all trends are pointing up. <laughs> We're hopeful he can still be the player they traded for. They gave up a first and a Pro Bowl center to get him. And then just to rub dirt in the wound, the reason they traded the Pro Bowl center was because he couldn't stay healthy. Well, last year in New Orleans, he started 16 games for the first time in three or four years. <laughs> so, it, so far, New Orleans has won the trade for what that's worth. But there's still uh, there's still hope that uh, that Jimmy Graham can be the big part of something special here. Speaking of rubbing dirt in the wounds, yeah, thank you for mentioning the Percy Harvin trade. That's uh... – <laughs> That was a that was that was a stellar move by the Jets. One in six, you go out and rent a player, and really they, they gave up a sixth round pick for him. But more importantly, is that they cost themselves six point five million dollars in cap space that they could have rolled over to the next year to get a guy to play eight games when the season was already over. So I think that was uh it was our, the Jets' former GM John Idzik maybe doing his old friend a favor because I, I still can't figure out that deal from the Jets' perspective. Hey, the Seahawks gave up a first for him. <laughs> they first ended an extension, and then uh, he was hurt the whole year. And I honestly forget if he was cut or traded halfway through 2014, but they they could not get him out of that building quick enough. So yeah, that blew up in their face. Yeah, it's uh, uh, yeah. I don't think either fan base is that thrilled with Percy Harvin. I don't uh, think I don't think people in Minnesota like him either. Yeah. <laughs> You may have been paid the most money with the least accomplished of anyone in the league outside of like a, a Demarcus Russell or something. Yeah, <laughs> I don't. I don't know. I think the Jets have had some guys through, through the years that could give could give Percy a run for his money. <laughs> um, oh, that's right. Who, who was the pass rusher they had who just never developed? Vernon Golston. That's Vernon the one. Golston. Yes. No sacks. Yeah, no sacks in his NFL career, which. I mean, you watch you watch the NFL, like some of these guys who are, I mean, sometimes a guy just like runs into a sack, you know, like a quarterback just like run, quarterback like has to step into somebody. Like it's unbelievable that, in, you know, in three years with the Jets, he couldn't step, he couldn't get into that situation once. Yeah. No, I'm sorry to bring that up. <laughs> Thinking about dra- Jets draft picks and uh, that came to mind. All right. All right. How about this? You don't bring up Golston anymore and I won't mention the name Testaverde. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? Here's the thing. I was thinking about that. I, I did a show this week going over Seahawks Jets games. Um, first of all, funny trivia note: the Seahawks started in '76, and their first five road games against the Jets, they went five and zero. And then since 1983, they are zero and five. The last time they beat the Jets in New York, uh, they had Jim Zorn throwing passes and Kurt Warner running. So it's been a while. But the thing about the Testaverde game is, partly as a result of that game, Dennis Erickson got fired. And they brought in Mike Holmgren. Mike Holmgren, yeah. <laughs> that was, at the time, the most successful stint the franchise had ever seen. So you, in, in the long run, Vinny Testaverde and the Jets, and especially the referees, they did Seattle a favor. It's funny you mentioned that because I actually just wrote, scheduled, wrote an article scheduled for Friday that makes that, <laughs> makes that exact point. Is you, know, you look at that, that set up Mike Holmgren, and then the Holmgren era ends. Jim Mora comes in for a year, and then you get Pete Carroll, who's even you know even more successful than Holmgren. So things have worked out okay for Seattle. Here's another funny note: is that this is this is the first time that the Seahawks obviously have been to the Meadowlands. You know they played the Giants 
in this time. They obviously beat Denver in the Super Bowl in the Meadowlands, but this is the first time the Seahawks have visited the Jets since 2004. I know. it's Even when they were in, in the AFC, uh, they still have like an 11-year gap between trips to the, to the Jets. It was, it, it's funny how the schedule worked out like that. Let's talk about the Seahawks defense, and it's uh, obviously a tremendous defense. A lot, a lot of big names on it, and seems seems like it's they haven't missed a beat this year. It seems like they're playing just as well. Um, what do you think? What do you think the big the key part? What what player? What one player do you think is the one guy they they can least afford to lose? Because I feel like most people know Richard Sherman. I've always thought it was Earl Thomas, though. I always thought he was he was the key. I mean, not that you can not that you want to lose either guy, but I always thought Earl Thomas was really the key part of that defense, just the way he takes away takes away like the deep middle part of the field by playing center field. So I'm interested in your thoughts, or maybe it's somebody else. No, I totally agree with you. I think uh, they can't run their primary defensive scheme without a player like Earl Thomas, and there's no other player like Earl Thomas. I don't think in the league right now. So uh, he's he's you know he's one of the two or three most most important defensive players in the league. But like you say, their, their, their primary game plan is let's let Earl Thomas patrol the deep middle. That makes things easier on the cornerbacks who know they have uh, help on anything inside. Anything inside indeed will have help. That also lets Cam Chancellor, uh, he crowds the box a lot. And, you know, the, the domino effect from what he can offer, um, you can't get that from his own personal stat sheet. And it's even hard to tell on film study unless you're just paying very close attention to what's happening away from the ball. Um, so it's, it's, all, it's an invisible impact sometimes, but the range he offers, pardon me, the range he offers, the, uh, his ability to line up deep, but he, he can still be a good run enforcer lining up 20 yards off the line of scrimmage. He can diagnose and move that quickly. Um, so it, it, it's not a stress to say because of what he offers himself at the range he can cover, but the, uh, the way Seattle's defense plays with them, it's almost like having 12 guys in the field just because of the, of the, of the way the, his teammates are able to play knowing they have him behind him. Um, it, lets, it lets Chancellor be more aggressive up at the line, and it lets the cornerbacks be more aggressive taking away the outside routes. And, uh, and that, of course, you know, they're, they're, the other part of their scheme is keeping, you know, as, as Thomas patrols the deep middle, they want Chancellor to patrol more of the short middle, and they invite you to hit those crossing patterns and curl routes, and then Cam Chancellor comes up and levels you like a sledgehammer. That, that's their primary game plan, and they can't do that without a player like Earl Thomas. And what I think is really impressive about this defense is it seems philosophically like they're not trying to fool you. You know exactly what they're going to run. It's just they have so much talent that you can't beat them. No, that's definitely true. Their, their base scheme is – their base defense is, is, is simple and it's conservative. And uh, they, they think eventually you will make a mistake they can exploit rather than um, necessarily, uh, you know, uh, sacrificing or taking a big gamble with a big blitz or an off-balance line or anything like that. By and large, they're going to rush four. They're going to play press man on the outside with a single high safety and play man across the field. And, uh, or excuse me, play, 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 play zone on the, on the short routes. Um, that, that's their base scheme, and it's been working now really for five years. Um, the 2011 defense you know, obviously didn't win championship that year because uh, Tavares Jackson was the quarterback. But the defense was good that year too, and, and it has been, you know, we're, we're going for our fourth, excuse me, going for our fifth straight year of leading the league in scoring defense, which is a large testament to the defense, a large testament to the offense that doesn't turn the ball over and you know controls the clock and keeps the game short. But regardless, it's been a tremendous era of success here, and uh, Earl's the biggest key. 
And you you look at you look at some of the corner or some of the sec- guys in the secondary they've gotten. They really have not. Earl Thomas was a was a high first round pick, but they've really found guys in the late rounds or maybe you know a guy like Brandon Browner who they brought in from the CFL. It seems like it, at least at corner they have kind of the prototype for what they want. Where that you know they don't necessarily want a guy. They don't necessarily need a guy who's a burner. What they want you know they want a big guy. You know they, they want a guy who can who can get up there and pr- press, be physical, and uh, you know play play that deep zone. No, exactly, and and, and that's you know the, the fact they don't look for necessarily uh, Olympic speed at cornerback. That's also part of why their speed their scheme is so conservative. They if you beat these if you, if most NFL receivers, if they get a step on these cornerbacks, these cornerbacks are not going to be very good at recovering. That's um, that's what Earl's there for. Um, but yeah, no, they, they they have a certain style they look for, and those styles, you know, like you say, Thomas was I, I think a top ten pick, uh, but Sherman was a fifth rounder, and he started as a wide receiver in college, and he was a project. Uh, Cam Cam Chancellor was actually he was drafted I, either by Holmgren or the Mora era, but he was. He was on the team before Patero and company arrived, so they, they lucked into him. Uh, the Seahawks had this monster giant safety weren't sure what to do with him. D. Carroll looked him up and down and said, ooh, I got an idea. I'm just going to sit in the middle of the field and let him create havoc. You know, there's, I don't know if you're a, if you, you know, a fan of comic book movies, but there's a scene in the Avengers where Captain America is calling out his scheme for everyone and has a task for everyone to do. At the end, he just turns to Hulk and says, Hulk, smash. That's what Cam Chancellor does. Cam smashes. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that in the NFL is it's a simple scheme, but if you have the talent to do it, now if you don't have a very talented team and you, you, you're you probably not going to win because you, you do have to kind of – if you don't have talent, you kind of have to mask it by fooling the opposition. If you have talent like this, I think there is something to be run – something to be said for running a simple scheme because if you have a guy playing at the same spot doing the same thing, he just gets so much experience playing a certain type of route. He knows these guys know exactly what to do. They have chemistry. They know when to pass a guy off. It just it, you're you're sim, you're sim, you may be simplifying it for the offense, but you're also simplifying things for them. And they they can just go out go out and play. They don't really need to think as much. You know, I was watching one of the NFL films uh, shows on the '70s Steelers, the Steel Curtain days, and uh, you if you watch this and they're interviewing all the old players. And no one came out and said anything directly. But if you kind of read between the lines, they didn't necessarily think much. The Steelers players didn't necessarily think much of Chuck Knoll as a strategist or uh, you know, as, as next as his coach. All he did was get a bunch of Hall of Famers and stand out of the way. And that's to a large degree what Seattle has done. They've got, I think, Earl and Sherman. Uh, if they keep, if they're headed down a Hall of Fame path if everything goes great. Um, I think Chancellor is probably a step below that. But they've also got two great linebackers in K.J. Wright and Bobby Wagner. They've got two great pass rushers in Cliff Avril and uh, Michael Bennett. They've got, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of size and defensive tackle. You know, yeah, they, they acquire good players. They coach those good players well, and then they stand out of the way. Yeah, yeah no question. Yeah. Uh, I guess uh, my, a question for you might be, um, I, I, haven't, I haven't actually checked the line. I'm assuming Seattle's a favorite going into this game. Um, if, if the Jets going to pull off this upset, how do you see that going down? I think it would probably play out similar to the way the game Seattle played against the Rams week two did. I think it probably would help the Jets if Wilson's mobility was limited because I think the Jets, 
one area in this game where the Jets do have an advantage is in the trenches, the Jets defensive line against that Seattle offensive line. Now, if Wilson, I think the way Seattle would have to counter that is through Wilson's mobility. So if that's compromised through his injury, I can see the Jets having a good game defensively. Um, and on offense, it's going to be about limiting mistakes. Ryan Fitzpatrick is what he is. He's a guy who's going to make risky throws. So you hope you hope his throws this week are not are not going to end up in the defender's hands. So I think there's going to be some luck to that. There's going to be some. So he's going to have to play smarter than he did against Kansas City. I mean, he's always been a chance taker, but some of the chances he was taking against Kansas City were beyond anything I've seen from him. Uh, Jets are, I think the Jets really just need to, they need, I mean, it's, it may be cliche, they need to play good defense and av- avoid mistakes, play field position, and maybe get a big play from either the defense or maybe a turnover or maybe a big return on special teams. Um, I think most people would agree objectively that Seattle is the more talented team in in this game. So Jets may need to make something big happen to make up for that talent deficiency. No, I, I think I agree with most of that. It, it, it's cliche and easy to say, but it's still true. Um, they're they're going to need turnovers to win. Um, they, they should, I think, you know, the, the, the Jets' D-line is such a bad matchup for Seattle. Um, I think you're right. This could look a lot like, you know, Seattle's first game was an ugly win over Miami, and their second game was a hideous loss to the Rams. So this could be another, you know, 13-12 final or something. <laughs> um, I, I, I do think Seattle has the advantage in most other with, the, with the no exception of their offensive line against the Jets front seven, I see Seattle having an offense pretty much everywhere else. Yeah, the Jets have a guy on offense who I think actually might – he's the type of guy who seems like he's built to play against Seattle's defense. He's, he's not a big name. Uh, you probably know Brandon Marshall, Eric Decker. There's a third guy who's emerged this year, Quincy Inunua, and he was drafted in the sixth round of the 2014 draft, which was just a really bad draft for the Jets. We're – two years out from that and they only have three players left from a 12-man draft class and you know we're talking two years later so we're not even talking about a player necessarily needing to be successful we're talking about players who need to show enough to just show enough upside to justify a third year on the team the Jets only have three of them um oh wow but yeah (laughs) yeah oh wow is right that was a uh that was a result of the former Jets GM who only lasted two years who came from Seattle John Idzik who Name who is not exactly the most popular guy among Jets fans for his job performance. Um, yeah. But Anunwa, essentially, he he was a guy who came from a run-heavy option offense at Nebraska. They ran the ball over 60% of the time. And when you play in an offense like that, you really need to be able to block as a wide receiver or you don't play. So he, and he's a big, he's big for a receiver. So they kind of turned him into an H back a year ago, and he was kind of an unheralded part of their run blocking. He started to flash some playmaking ability later in the season. He had a big catch on a big third down in a late season win over Dallas. He had a huge catch and run, sixty four yards, I think, in overtime in a Week sixteen game against New England that set up the winning touchdown, and. Brandon Marshall said to Jim Nance, and we heard this the first two weeks because Jim Nance called the Jets game, is Brandon Marshall said, said you, have to keep, you have to check out Anunwa. This guy's 100 times better than he was a year ago. And he's kind of developed into a guy the Jets move around the field. They, they've lined him up on, outside, on the outside. They've stuck him in the slot. They've lined him tight in the slot. They've still used him as an, as an H-back, and they kind of use him to try and create mismatches. 
the big guy. He's a he's physical with as a runner. He's tough to bring down. He uses his body well. So that's a guy who Seattle fans might not be that familiar with, but he's the type of guy who actually might be built to play against this defense. Now I have a lot of respect for the Seattle defense. I would not be surprised at all if they shut him down, but that's a guy who I kind of view as an X factor for the jets in this game. So he's a, he's a big guy like Decker and Marshall. Yes. Yeah, he, he is. Wow. Yeah. Giant receiving core then. <laughs> I I was watching the, uh, the Jets bills, the Thursday night game. I had it on TV, but I was working on other stuff. I wasn't really paying attention. And I remember early in the game, and no one made a catch. And I looked up, and I was I, I was surprised and kind of chuckled. Haha! They have a Quincy Anunwa graphic. I can't believe they bothered to make that. And then as the game went on, he kept making catch after catch after catch. And I thought, boy, I was kind of dumb, wasn't I? <laughs> well, hey, I mean, there, there was a guy in the from the 2014 Jets draft class that was, as I told you, that was not exactly the most stellar class. He, he, he was a guy who really kind of flew under the radar last year. I think. I think a lot of people who even watch the Jets from week to week did not appreciate what he brought as a blocker. And the question this year was, was he just going to be a guy who was kind of an okay blocker in an H-back role where, you know, he's useful for a guy who was a sixth-round pick who's making nothing? Or was he going to blossom into a legitimately solid part of this offense? And we're only three weeks in, so you, you can't, you know, I mean, how many guys have put together, strung together three good games? But at this point, you have to be optimistic from a Jets standpoint on the way this guy is developing because I think the coaching staff has really used him effectively. I'm not sure that he's a guy who necessarily would be great if you just stuck him out as an X because he's not necessarily he's not slow, but he's not he doesn't have the he doesn't have blazing speed. So what they do is they move him around and kind of try and create a mismatch, try and create a mismatch for him. And he's a versatile guy. He, he brings a lot to the table. So he's a guy to watch. Okay, that's the the X factor to watch for on on Sunday. Then, who would you say um, Seattle's X factor is? That's a you know it's an interesting question. Um, their running backs they have Thomas Rawls is out. Um, he's been dealing with what they thought was a muscle injury, and they realized he had a broken leg. He's out for a few weeks. Um, so Kristen Michael will be the lead back. Um, CJ Posyth is the guy they drafted out of Notre Dame, who they thought was be a stud receiving back, but he's got a hand injury. He hasn't played since week one. Um, they just signed C.J. Spiller this week, who is, you know, uh, you, you've seen him playing with Buffalo for many years. Um, he, he's a very dangerous running back for both teams. <laughs> he's a threat to get stuff for zero yards and a threat to go for 50 at any time. So um, I, I, I don't, I'm not sure how much they're going to use him. They just signed him this week. But it's, it's a fascinating thing for me. Um so far, the Seattle passing game has been all Doug Baldwin and all Jimmy Graham. Um, Jermaine Curse hasn't done much, and Tyler Lockett hasn't done much, too. And he's been dealing with injuries. Of those two, the guy with the most upside is definitely Tyler Lockett. Uh, he was the rookie last year out of Kansas State, and he's a do-it-all. You know, He's undersized, but he's a kick returner, big play receiver, and, and, and a very good receiver, too, at least as a second or third receiver in Seattle's offense. But he's a guy who... Um, Probably is not really known outside of Seattle very well, but he's a guy who can who can torture that defense in one play and make everyone look silly. He, he's their he's their home run threat right now. Well, it's funny you mentioned Spiller because he actually worked out for the Jets on Tuesday before he signed with Seattle later in the week. Well, yeah, that that, that tells you something about how uh, you know 
if he was that great, the Jets would have signed him and not let him go. So right. Um, I think one of the things that surprised me was he actually, you know, Chan Gailey was his coach in Buffalo. So I figured when he was a free agent uh, back in 2015, the Jets would definitely sign him, and they didn't really show a lot of interest. So I mean, who knows what that means? Uh, Christine Michael is a guy who uh, I'm very frustrated with because. Um, last year, I thought he was going to be a breakout fantasy player with Dallas where he, you know, he was going to that team, you know, he was going to a team that didn't really have an established back and they had that great offensive line. And around this time of year, a girl, this girl I was dating, she, she was playing fantasy football for the first time. So she's like, well, what should I do? And the first thing I said was draft, draft this guy, this guy's going to be great. And he ends up getting cut from the team. Because I'm getting cut by Dallas, so they got this. My great sleeper got cut, but not not by the fantasy team, but by his real team. And I, I, now, are you are you still dating this girl? No, no. I hope that's not why. I don't. I blame him. That's that's okay. she, never, she never said it, but I blame him. Yeah, but no, no, you're right. It's a it's a bizarre thing. Um, we, we were trying to think of, and we can't think of a, 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 a we can't think of this happening with any player in any sport. Where he's drafted highly, he's disappointed, doesn't last long. He gets, uh, you know, he, move, he moves on, but he doesn't last there either, and he's unemployed. So Team A then gets a bunch of injuries, brings him back, and lo and behold, it works out. We, we, we can't think of a confidence ever happening. Yeah, it's 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 difficult to imagine. I mean, the only one the only one that comes to mind was a guy who was you know the best one of the best corners in football, one of the best defensive players in football was Darrell Revis. You know, the Jets traded him. Two years later, they bring him back, and in the yeah. process, so they got a they got a draft pick that turned into Sheldon Richardson, who one of the you exactly. know, one of the star defensive linemen. So the, here's the problem. Yeah, that, that, that that doesn't work because he was a great player first. Right, it doesn't work. <laughs> so, right, right. So that was the only. You, you, that was the only one that came to mind. Back but, up for a few years, but yeah, right. Yeah, so that's uh, that just shows you when when you got a good organization, you got a good organization. I think you know since 2012, Seattle's been one of the best organizations in the league. I, I think that's pretty hard to argue. So I, I have one last question for you, and it's the question I always ask, just because opposing fans really don't know a lot about this aspect of an, of an opponent heading into a game, what do the Seahawks special teams look like? Um, thus far, um, not special <laughs> in, in, in any aspect. They're not terrible at anything. They haven't been great at anything. Um, even Hauschka missed an extra point against uh, Miami. Turned out not to matter, but um, Tyler Lockett is dangerous on punt returns. He had a big return this week for the first time. And kick returns, by the way. Um, now, he has been hurt as well. I'm honest, I haven't uh, I'm not certain what his status is for week four. Uh, he played in week three, but he was limited. Um, their punt team is, uh, they focus on short, high punts that limit returns, which just leads to a lot of fair catches, which is boring, but it works. Um, and Hauschka has been, he's actually been the kicker for quite a few years, and he, they're, they're, he's, he's been very good. Um, so thus far through three games of 2016, they really haven't been much. There's been that one big return. Uh, there's the potential there to be much better. So on the Jets side, they have a veteran kicker, Nick Folk, who probably, you know, an average, maybe a little below average kicker. He had a really bad week one. He had a uh, short kick block and he missed an extra point in a one point loss. So he's kind of up and down. They have a rookie punter, uh, Lack Edwards, who they drafted in the seventh round, who's off to a good start. 
And the return game, they were relying on an undrafted rookie named Jalen Marshall, who showed some flashes, but also has fumbled the ball repeatedly since the start of preseason. In fact, in four of his last five games, if you count the preseason, he's fumbled. Now, some of them was, those were on offense, but ball security was an issue. He actually suffered an injury. He suffered a torn labrum, so he's going to be out for a few weeks. So the team re-signed Jeremy Ross, who was a veteran who was competing with Marshall in training camp and preseason for the job. So he's not really, you know, he's kind of one of those guys who, well, I'll put it this way, he was a guy they, who was available before week four of the season. So you're just hoping right. for some, something credible out of him. I'm not sure how, how big he'll be in the return game on Sunday. Okay. Well, um, I think that about covers it on my end. Um, do you have any, any, any final questions? No, Vincent, it was a pleasure work. It was a pleasure working with you. I'd say we should do this again, but the Jets and the Seahawks only play each other <laughs> once every four years, unless they hey. hit the Super Bowl, which I think I, you know, I was say. Seattle, well, Seattle, I, I think Seattle has a tremendous shot to be there. I'm not so sure about the Jets. You, you never know. Maybe we'll talk again in January. All right. Well, I, I'll hold you to that. Vincent, it was great, great, great speaking with you. You too, man. Thank you. Thank you, John, for setting this up. All right. And have a great day, everybody. Okay. There we go. I want to thank John Buchko of Locked On Jets for getting all that set up. I think it went very well. We had a good time. Always a good time here in the Locked On Podcast Network. That is going to do it for today. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Locked Seahawks. And please go like us on Facebook as well, facebook.com slash Locked on Seahawks. You'll also want to follow us at Locked on Seahawks at gmail.com. Send us a line. Send us questions, comments, complaints, hate mail, uh, praise, and all of the above. Donations. We'll set up a GoFundMe or something. Why not? Uh, also, be sure and check out my appearance on the uh, Bill Barnwell show on ESPN where we previewed all of Week Force games. Uh, you can find that, follow uh, at Bill Barnwell on Twitter. That will take you right to that. And that is going to do it for today. Hope you all enjoy Sunday's game. And go Hawks. You are Locked On Seahawks, your daily podcast on the Seattle Seahawks. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What you doing? Ran out of space on my phone, so I'm deleting some stuff. Bye, singing dog. Bye, goal. I pronounce you by wedding ceremony. Stop. At Metro PCS, you get two free phones with twice as much memory. Really? Don't say bye to your memories. Switch to Metro PCS and get two free LG K20 Plus phones with 32 gigs when you switch two lines. Metro PCS. Wireless. Figure it out. Coverage not available in some areas. Sales tax not included in phone price. Excludes numbers on the T-Mobile network. See store for details and terms and conditions. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.